Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to worship again with you. And Father, I pray that you would be with us now moving forward, that anything that I say, any words that are spoken, any intentions will bring glory to you. Thank you, Father, in your name, amen. I want to start with a verse this morning, Hebrews 4, 12. And it says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts, and this is the word I want you to focus in on, and intentions of the heart. How many of you made a resolution? Anybody? Yeah, there's some resolutions out there. Well, let me tell you, I've decided I'm not gonna make resolutions anymore because I always break them and then I feel like a failure. Instead, I am going to set intentions. And these intentions can be set every day. And these tensions are self, intentions are self-compassionate because they're adaptable. So they allow me every day to set the intention of that day moving forward. The first time that I learned about intentions was when I read a book that was published in 1892. It was a book by Charles Monroe Sheldon, and it was entitled In His Steps. Have any of you heard of this book? It is a really good book. Now, 1892, it has been updated, and you can buy copies that are a little more um, uh, popular words, I guess you would say, more normal terminology that we're used to. But this follows Reverend Maxwell as he challenges his congregation to ask themselves in everything that they do, what would Jesus do? Whether it was work or social or family, any action that they did, what would Jesus do? And this actually began the movement of the social gospel, which is a gospel that applies to social situations, brings it to practical daily living. Now, while you may not be as familiar within his steps, I'm guessing a lot of you recognize this. Almost 100 years after this book was published in 1990, a resurgence of this idea came in WWJD. Anybody ever wear one of those? Yeah? I'm not the only heretic. <laughs> WWJD, I had it on a t-shirt, we read a worship book about it, my children had four on each arm that were multicolored and neon. I mean, we went into this full bore. I so much wanted to do what Jesus would do. The problem is, I focused on the wrong word. Can you imagine what word I focused on? Anybody? Do. That's exactly right, do. What would Jesus do? Well, I read my Bible and I knew that he gave and he healed and he ministered and he preached and he walked and he saved and he did all of these things. And suddenly, my WWJD became something that it didn't matter if I didn't have enough, I gave anyway. It didn't matter if it hurt me physically, I gave anyway. It didn't matter if it took time away from my family. I gave anyway because, well, what would Jesus do? So as time has gone by and the years have progressed, I have learned that WWJD 
has, has really been a call to learn about Jesus, to understand who he authentically was. And it's led me to four things that I'm gonna share with you this morning. And these are just peculiar to me. Hopefully they'll um, be applicable to you. And I'm sure that you have things about Jesus that I'm not gonna mention that you would like to share. And please, email me, let me know. Let's have a conversation about who this Jesus is. But the first thing that I wanna share with you about Jesus was that he was unoffendable. I mean, think about it. How many opportunities were there for Jesus to be offended? Don't you know who I am? But he wasn't. There is an author named Brant Hansen. Brant, the first time that I ever heard about him was on Christian radio. He um, led out in the morning program on the, the radio station up in Maryland when we lived up there. And he wrote a book called Unoffendable. This book talks about how different our lives would be if we were unoffendable. And here's one of the things that he says. Choosing not to take offense is not about simply ignoring wrongs. You don't have to simply accept it, but you can act without contempt, anger, and bitterness. Let me give you an example. I went and got my hair done one time, and the lady in the chair next to me was very animated and sharing a story with her hairstylist about an experience she had with her husband. They both took the day off work, and the husband was gonna stay home and do some things around the house, and she was gonna go to run some errands. And she told him, stay close to the phone, keep the phone with you all the time. I'm gonna call when I'm done, and then you can be ready, and let's go to lunch. And he's great. I'm on that. This is good. So he picked up the phone. She took off out the, out the door, went and ran her errands and did what she needed to do. And when she was close to getting ready to go home, she pulled out her cell phone, called her husband, and was ready to tell him. It rang, and it rang, and it rang, and it went to voicemail. And she said <clears throat> over the voicemail, Honey, I'm ready to come home. And I just wanted to let you know, I hope you hear this soon, because I'll be there in about 20 minutes, so be ready so we can go to lunch. Well, when she hung up, she thought, you know, I forgot I needed to do one more errand. I'm going to go run it real quick. So she ran that second errand, which put her a little longer. She called her husband, left a message again, because nobody answered the phone, and said, I'm coming home. Are you ready? She thought, hmm, 10 minutes home, I'm going to stop and I'm going to call him again. She called him again. I'm really getting offended that you don't care enough to answer the phone. Would you please answer the phone? Seven times she called and left a message. The beginning message and the ending message didn't sound anything alike. She gets home, her husband is puttering around the house, and she goes up to him and she said, why didn't you keep the phone with you? 
He said, I did. She said, I have called you seven times. He said, I've got the phone with me. She said, I called you seven times and you didn't answer. He said, the phone never rang. She said, I am so angry with you, I don't know what to do. She grabbed his hand, dragged him over to the phone, looked at it and said, look at that, seven messages, seven messages and you didn't answer one of them. He said, I don't understand, the phone never rang. I even carried it with me out into the garden. She said, I don't know what you're talking about, but you did not answer the phone. He said, honey, I can only tell you that I had the phone with me all the time. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled it out and he said, see, here it is. And she looked at him and she said, that's the remote control. (laughs) Now imagine how her day would have gone if she had been unoffendable. It might have been more a case of wondering, is he okay? Is everything all right? It might have not been a ruined day, which is what she said to everybody in the salon. It ruined my day. It ruined it because she was offendable. What if she had approached it differently? What if she had not had anger and contempt and bitterness in her heart? That reunion when she met her husband at home might have been entirely different. They might still have gone out to eat, and certainly it would not have ruined her day. Jesus was unoffendable. There's a verse in Psalm 17:3 that says, You have put my heart to the test. My intent is that my mouth will not offend. And I'm going to add on to that, and I will not be offendable. The other thing that I've learned about Jesus, and this was probably one of the most difficult for, well, not difficult, it was one of the biggest revelations. And that is, is that Jesus set boundaries. Now remember back to my original WWJD, it was a boundaryless relationship that I had, and that's what I expected was expected of me. In reality, Jesus was very intent on his boundaries. There's a book called Your Best Life in Jesus' Easy Yoke. I want you to know I have not read this book, but I did read this quote, and it makes me interested in it, so I wanted to share the quote with you. It says this, Jesus lived in a rhythm of life that not only kept him free from burnout, but far beyond that, it kept him full of God full of grace and truth, and therefore ready and able to be compassionate and generous in his response to people, their hearts, their interruptions, and crisis situations. How amazing is that? Don't we all want to be able to minister like that? And how often do we find ourselves totally burnt out, totally unable to give because we have given beyond what we can. We didn't replenish first. Here's some of the examples that Jesus set. Jesus had a private prayer time that he observed very, very closely. There's so many times that he pulled away. Luke says nine times in the gospel, just that one book that Jesus pulled away to have prayer to be with God, to refill, to replenish. Jesus set the boundary of being honest and direct. He didn't try to coerce people. And he says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
Jesus set priorities, and this is very, very clear in his ministry. He also pleased God, not people. And lastly, he obeyed God. These are the boundaries that Jesus set, and they are good. It was a relief for me to realize that Jesus set boundaries. It truly, truly was, because I didn't know how to do that. And when I saw him do it, it became something that, well, what would Jesus do? I can do that. So I wasn't gonna include this one, but I promised my ladies in our book club that I would. This, is, this was such a revelation for me. Jesus is Sabbath. I was reading the book for our book club, and I, I was reading along, you know, getting ready. We're, we, we read a chapter ahead, and then we meet together. So I was plowing through it, trying to get it done in the little bit of time that I had in that day. And I came across this statement. It, this is from The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And he's talking about interruptions. And he says, you set aside time to Sabbath. And I was like, wait, what? And I went back and read it. You set time aside to Sabbath. And I'm like, okay, that's a verb. No, Sabbath is a noun. Sabbath has a beginning and an end. Sabbath is a day. You do certain things on that Sabbath. I mean, when I grew up and I went to Ocean City, Maryland with my friend Kathy Robb, we went out in the water and it was very, very clear we could go up to our ankles. We could go up to our ankles. Any more than that, we were in too deep and that was not Sabbath. And here we were out in the water up to our ankles looking for seashells. We were Sabbathing and a wave came along and took me down and I got in trouble because Sabbath was a noun. But this Sabbath is a verb. And then it made me realize, well, Jesus is Sabbath. Everything about Jesus is Sabbath. Everything about the way that he lives. And if we do Jesus, what would Jesus do about Sabbath? Then our Sabbath is gonna be full of rest. It's gonna be full of intimacy with God, with contentment, with completion. People are gonna be more important than rules, and time with God will be our fuel. Jesus is Sabbath, that's just, wow. Brother Lawrence is a young, uh, well, he's not young. This is an old book. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. It's a little book, and it's not even written by Brother Lawrence. It's someone who transcribed conversations they had with him. But there are so many pearls in this book things that you just sit back and have to read again. And this is one of his quotes. It says, <clears throat> this simple action to God is what works best for me. The simple attention to God is what works best for me, along with gazing lovingly at him. Sometimes my thoughts may wander, either because I have to pay attention to something else or because of my own weakness but I am soon reminded by inward feelings so delightful and delicious that I am embarrassed to talk about them. Delightful and delicious. 
When was the last time Sabbath was delightful and delicious? This is what we want. This is who Jesus is, because Jesus is Sabbath. And lastly, Jesus was present in the moment. And let's talk about another little man who shows the story of how present Jesus was. Read with me Luke 19, one to nine. Jesus was going through Jericho, where a man named Zacchaeus lived. He was in charge of collecting taxes and was very rich. Jesus was heading his way, and Zacchaeus wanted to see what he was like, but Zacchaeus was a short man and could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. When Jesus got there, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. I want to stay with you today. Zacchaeus hurried down and gladly welcomed Jesus, and everyone who saw this started grumbling. They were offended. They were offended. This man, Zacchaeus, is a sinner, and Jesus is going home to eat with him. Later that day, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, I will give half of my property to the poor, and I will now pay back four times as much to everyone I have ever cheated. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today you and your family have been saved because you are a true son of Abraham. The son of man came to look for and to save people who are lost. Now, I don't know about you, but I think of this story, Jesus walking along, and I'm sure that he was in a crowd. We know he was in a crowd. And if I were in that crowd, I would be thinking about what I needed to do next, where I was gonna go, where were we gonna eat, what did the disciples need, did what I say last week, was it good? Do I need to think about that? I would be thinking about all kinds of things. And honestly, a little man in a tree, I don't think I would have seen him. But Jesus was present, and he was so present, not only to Zacchaeus, but to his needs. He knew that Zacchaeus needed at that moment to know that God saw him. Jesus was so present with him. It was a delicious and delightful engagement. When my girls were little, in 1990, when WWJD was beginning its resurgence into, into life, we went to Typhoon Lagoon. My dad always took his grandkids to a theme park for his birthday. Rather than us giving him a present, his present was to watch us all have a good time. We were so excited to go to Typhoon Lagoon this year because our oldest daughter, Michelle, who was 10, was finally tall enough to ride the rides. Now, you know they have those signs there, and you have to go stand under them, and they say, okay, you can go, and no, you can't go. Well, we had her back up to the, to the door jam, and we measured her, and we knew she was tall enough, and we were so excited she was going to get to go on the big people ride, and what a great day it was going to be. We had such anticipation of what that day was going to turn out like. So we get there, find our special spot, and we let her pick the first ride. She went tearing, tearing up to the slide and was so excited to be there and got in line. And when we got up to the very top, the lifeguard looked at her and he says, excuse me, you're not tall enough. Would you please stand here by this sign? Sure enough, whoever put that sign in put it a half an inch too tall. They wouldn't let her ride. So we said, it's okay, honey, choose another ride. So she did. We got up to that ride. Do you know what happened? 
excuse me, you're not tall enough to ride this ride. Every adult ride that we went to, including the one where the whole family gets on the big inner tube, every single one of them, they said, we're sorry. She's not tall enough. She can't ride the big people ride. So we said, it's okay, sweetheart. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go play in the children's section. We'll just have a good day there, it'll be all right. So we take her there. She and her sister run off to go play. A lifeguard whistle blows, and the lifeguard says, excuse me, you're too tall to be in here. You need to leave. I did what every mother would do. I became offended. I wanted to talk to Michael Eisner right then and let him know my daughter could ride any ride she wanted to ride, but that wasn't the case. My husband is so good and so wise, and he's, I just love him so much. And in his kindest, gentlest, honey, get a grip voice, he said, you need to let this go. We need to focus on Michelle. And I saw the wisdom of what he was saying, and I set my offendedness aside, and we spent the rest of the day riding the two rides that she could ride, the lazy river and the wave pool. And my husband invented every game you can possibly think of on the lazy river. They found every water jet coming out of the wall. They would practice who could go the furthest under the water, who could go the furthest with their head above the water and their feet sticking out, who could swim the fastest, and who could float the slowest. I'm sure all of the people that were trying to have a nice lazy experience were a little upset with us, but that wasn't our focus. Our focus was our daughter. We listened for the sound of the horn to let us know that the wave was gonna deploy, and we played games figuring out what it was like to, to catch the wave in the shallow end, what it was like to catch the wave in the deep end, how long we had from, from the lazy river to the pool to get there once the horn blew. I mean, we just spent the whole day, the four of us, together, and it was the most amazing experience. It was so delightful, and it was so delicious because we were together as a family. And I'll tell you what I, looking back, what I see about that day, we learned to be unoffendable. We practiced setting boundaries to recognize what we could do and couldn't do and how our focus was on Michelle. We were present in the moment with whatever we had, and we had a rest and an intimacy as a family that we've never had on any other Typhoon Lagoon visit. In fact, when I think back out of all of the times we've gone, that's the trip. That's the one. That's the one that sticks out in our minds. So let me ask you, here we are, 2022. I could be cheesy and say, all right, folks, our mantra, what would Jesus do in 2022? Or maybe I could use one of my favorite words, and that's I wonder. And it causes me to ask, without pretext or context, without baggage, without expectations, with curiosity, what would 2022 be like if I 
ask, what would Jesus do? I wonder what 2022 will be like and what changes it will bring in me. And I wonder how delicious and delightful this coming year could be with all of the things that we don't expect and all of the things that we can't plan if we intentionally ask to walk in his steps.